welcome to the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah. To save time, as this is a longer episode, we're going to jump right into the meat of the conversation with a dialogue between Ryan Fasani and Brian Wardlock. They are picking up where we left off last week in our conversation about money. Additionally, much to my chagrin, this episode also has some bugs in it. So please forgive the audio glitches and enjoy a conversation between Fasani and Wardlaw about finances. Today we're going to deviate slightly uh, from what we're familiar with, and instead we're going to focus particularly on Brian's story as it relates to this conversation we've been having around economic paradigms. In other words, we're going to focus in on some of the backstory that led up to the creative work that Brian as a city pastor on a team of city pastors with the Seattle City Church has led to uh, how they're navigating a new financial future that's opened up all kinds of ministry possibilities. Anyhow, um, without me narrating too much, I want to hear from Brian from the get-go about some of the backstory to get us here, Um, and then we'll talk about some contextual factors that help you, the listeners, um, and me, quite honestly, better understand um, where they are as a ministry. Um, And then we'll dive into some of the juicier details. But until then, let's get a sense on what got them here and what the factors are that have helped them make those decisions. Brian, why don't you go ahead and uh, walk us slow enough. I mean, you could tell the story in probably 30 seconds, but walk us maybe a little bit slower and bring us to today, particularly financially speaking with the Seattle City Church. Go ahead. Yeah. So I think the the backstory that I always feel like I need to tell, um, because it's some of the scariest stuff for most pastors I talk to. And it was a scariest part for me and my family uh, was I was in full-time paid ministry. Um, so my my whole paycheck was coming from the church. And at the time we had two very young children. So my wife had started to stay home for a few years. And so literally our whole family was living off my paycheck from the church. When we moved to Seattle and started into neighborhood ministry um, alongside some other couples, we were scared to death uh, because we had no idea. I didn't think I could be qual- I would be qualified to work at Lowe's um, a master's in theology does nothing, um, anywhere else. (laughs) And so, uh, we really had to do, try to figure things out over the years. Um, we, I, my wife and I ended up buying a franchise of, uh, it's called happy feet, um, and started to learn to run a business basically to try and put food on the table while we started in on this ministry. Um, The thought was the business and the franchise model was going to be allow us to be in the neighborhood. And uh, and so we started doing that. We realized quickly that as our attention was together and yet in two different areas, meaning business and ministry, um, we realized the hustle that it was going to take in order to do ministry outside the box. And part of that hustle was the hustling of trying to figure out finances. And was there a possibility, whenever we could, we tried to find ways in which all those things could work together. So they were never, if I was running a business, if I was working, um, could those also be ministry points? Um, 
And I think the, the part was over the years, basically everything just became blended where there was, there was never a time people would say, can you clock your ministry hours? And I'd be like, no, there's, that's impossible. Every, when I'm watering in the grass, I, there's opportunity to build relationships um, with neighbors who walk by and things like that. And it's not like I'm going after them. Uh, it's just, just to be a neighbor. Um, and so riding on the bus, sitting in a coffee shop, there was never a, a time which I didn't try to have my eyes and heart open um, to people's needs and passions and desires. So that kind of began the hustle. So Brian, so a critical piece here, just from the get go, um, to make sure we're on the same page with your story is there was a, a, a stark shift from full time, we might call secure, at least financially secure ministry to what you've called neighborhood ministry, where there was less financial security and more, and this is a word you're, you're bringing into the story and more hustle where there's multiple sources of income. And I just want to name, because I think it's affirming for so many of us that have gone through a transition that's similar is that there is fear involved in making that shift. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, so, yeah. so the shift was a, a big risk. You, there's lots of fear involved. And then here we are, you're in Seattle and you're doing what you've called the hustle. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So then in 2012, in July, 2012, the uh, Nazarene denomination, we were still connected to them, um, but we weren't connected to a local church. And they had decided to close the church in the neighborhood that was here. It was small um, and I will say dysfunctional. Um, and so they, when they closed that church, they came to us and asked if we were interested in taking responsibility for the building and what that would look like. Um, there was a lot of conversation around that because we weren't interested in church planting at the time. Um, and, uh, or I should say traditional church planting. Um, but that was kind of an under underlying, uh, desire by the district that we would somehow fall into that. But, uh, when we took over the building, the building was in, in pretty bad shape. Uh, there was some bad relationship with the neighbors. There was about $3,000 in unpaid utility bills. And and we weren't given any money. Um, so there was no money that came with taking responsibility for the building. Um, and so, again, that added to the hustle, but also gave us a little bit of a context. Um, and in the hustle, let me let me just say this. The hustle, when, the hustle is a word that uh, some people in ministry and I use just around the desire to say, okay, as things shift, we can't just go, oh, poor me, I'm, I'm not supported. Um, and so as you do the hustle, paradigms shift. And you are then almost, I think by accident, maybe a new imagination comes of of what this could this look like um, because some little bubbles that were um, that were popped for me basically uh, that I thought had to happen like the church could only f survive on the tithes and offerings um, and if there wasn't some big givers then they could take care of their buildings when all of a sudden I've got a three thousand dollar utility bill um, we were already scraping by I had to try to mend the 
the relationship with the neighbors. So we spent the first two years basically allowing it to just the building to lay, to not do anything. We listened like crazy. It took a long time um, just to get on speaking terms with the neighbors because um, they were not happy. We had to ask some, some questions of what, what would they like to see in that building. And basically at one point they said the worst thing, they could name the worst thing. The worst thing would be that uh, <clears throat> that the building becomes condos. And I said, okay, good. We can land on that. None of us want that. Um, so in order for this to not become condos, it has to be used. Um, and then that began a conversation um, of how to, how to be a good neighbor and still let it be used. Okay, this, this is fascinating because it, something in this story um, has brought to my attention a counterintuitive component, right? Like my assumption, and I'm sure some of the listeners assume the same thing, is that you had an imagine a robust imagination. You had a whole list of really good ideas. You got to Seattle and you started implementing them. But what I'm hearing is from sort of out of fear and, and, and the hustle, which can sort of both be a negative and a positive word, but we're not going to deviate there. It was just the, uh, the, the tension you were under to survive essentially from the hardship birthed the imaginative capacity to come up with new ideas as opposed to the other way around. You didn't come in with the great ideas. You entered in and, and were under stress, strain and hardship. And instead of cutting bait, you lean further in and listened. And it was sort of, that's where the fermenting of good ideas seems to, to have begun. Is that right? That's, that's exactly right. And I think that is <clears throat> imperative uh, even in missional, um, missiological language, like old school missionaries, there was a big changeover, even in missionary work between more of a colonial uh, look at going somewhere and taking our culture and, and gospel and the ones that became uh, contextually a part of. Um, and that was, so that was always important. Uh, growing up on the mission field, I think I heard a little bit of that language, um, but never really, it never, I never embodied it because I just wasn't smart enough. So, uh, <laughs> until we accidentally started using it, some people say struggle with that because they say, well, you're not following the will of God or something. You know, they, they, they think that some, the will of God is, is not embedded in neighborhood or contextually uh it, it's almost as if god there was never an incarnation I, I think when we talk about god is just basically already putting something out in front that we're supposed to somehow know how to follow um uh and i i, I think there's parts of life that are like that but i don't think it's all the time and i do think the incarnational part is that we come into neighborhood or a part of neighborhood and we listen to the heartbeat of the neighborhood of where God is already at work and then go. That's good. I want to, I want to note a couple things because I have a hunch that would be great for future episodes, but then I want to drill further down into the story as it relates to the economic developments. Um, but I just want to point out that not only did you sort of shift in your economic security, you shifted your, in your missiological practice, 
you shifted in your understanding of what it meant to be what the incarnation meant both sort of as a theological category but also in the practice of ministry right and all of this is like the stew of creativity that was birthed out of hardship tension struggle hustle right so we're going to table that because i think those would be phenomenally interesting to, to to think through but back to the economics right so you're doing the hustle you got incomes you're running a little business you you're in the the building's in the hole like it's in the red right you're listening to what the neighbors have to say no one wants condos but it's not like all of a sudden someone drops 20 20k in your pocket and is like all right here you go now here's your out here's here's 20 or 40 or 90k or whatever it is so take so take us further in the story what happens economically yeah. So after a few years and working and finding like-minded people that would dream with us that were part of the neighborhood, uh, not all part of the church, some part of the church, but, um, we slowly uh, raised money, um, found ways of getting money through grants, through uh, uh, the um, our local district said, um, they finally came to us and said they would give us some money, um, but it could only be used on the building and they'd only give it to us if we could match it. So we had to go out and try to match it. Um, and so we were able to find some money that way. And then we would stretch that money by doing a lot of the work ourselves um, or finding just passionate people around. Um, some of our partners from the very beginning that helped us work in the building were really passionate um, around the arts and if you know anything about the arts community is they, they hustle. Um, you know, st the starving artist thing is, is real and uh, they, they do the hustle to make it and so that they can have their creative space. And so a lot of them were participating and so just easily, they just, they never even expected a thank you or anything. Um, and so that happened. So, so just jump forward. So we went through, we found ways of, of, to renovate the building. And uh, again, this comes from listening, but we reopened it as um, the Ballard Homestead, which is a gift of space from our neighborhood built around the shared value of the arts, faith, family, justice, and environmental care, which were all values that we found as we listened to neighborhood, um, that these are the things that our neighborhood um, holistically value, even if people don't take on all, all five of them. Um, it's a place we could gather around. So and now about 10,000 people walk through the um, building a year um, through different events. Um, and we have three long-term partners in the building. They're not owners, but they are long-term partners. And the building is sustainable. Um, and I say that with a question mark uh, because it's sustainable, except for some of the major projects like, repair, you know, redoing a $40,000 roof, uh, you know, some of those kind of things. Uh, and part when I say the property, it's not just the homestead or the old church. There's also two parsonages with it. Um, that so so, so um, paint that picture for us a little bit. So. I know we, we jumped forward. You did all the listening. You were present in the community. There was a desire, shared desire for what people didn't want for the space. Um, and then it jumped forward um, at the point where you realized, okay, there's a whole host of artistic people. You did matching funds with the district. 
boom, you get this place, you get the the homestead, which now known as the homestead, sort of brought up to um, speed, um, at least physically, and uh, and now it's being utilized at least at the very least by three long-term partners. Right. And I'm only guessing uh, that those are related to the arts in some way or shape or form. Um, there's a clearly a stated mission for the space. It's a, a very utilitarian space for an eclectic group of people generally grounded in the neighborhood. Okay. Where, how, how does this whole thing work economically now and then move us forward to how that connects to the city church? Seattle City Church. Yeah, so now I would say it's again it's it it's still functioning. Um, you know, one of the main partners is, is built around the faith value. One of them is around the arts value, and one is one of them is around the justice value. Um, and then then we have a lot of one time users, renters, things like that. Um, and so it is again. So it's a little bit, one of the partners helps me manage it. Um, so when we talk about economically, it's not, I don't, maybe, maybe this isn't defined and, and maybe we should, but it's, I'm not just talking about it monetarily. Um, there's, there's gotta be a sustainable way that it's even managed and worked and the people then, and what it takes to, you know, volunteers or whatever, you know, who's gonna, who's gonna clean it and uh, fix a toilet and stuff like that. So, uh, and then not only that, but be involved in continuing to connect the mission. So when we, when the, when the partners come in, we talk a lot about um, hospitality. And, and so a lot of my job right now is actually trying to remind people of the overarching mission and to practice hospitality for the next group and to remind them that they're not just caring for the needs of their group, but they're, they're getting the space ready to host the next group. So there's a reset and you have to bring it back to reset. You're supposed to leave it clean, all those kind of things. Uh, and, but that's, that's the hardest part, uh, I would say, as far as managing it. Um, and, but that, and then just learning how to run that and building out. Uh, I've learned, we've learned some, some positives and some negatives. Um, uh, yeah. And I mean, there's, there's definitely, there's places we could uh, build it out, but then every time we, we grow it, it has an impact on the neighborhood that it exists in the immediate neighborhood. So that's not always positive. And so we, we even manage how many shows a month we have or how many big events a month we have because, because it affects the neighbors. And, um, and yeah, another part is the, is beautifying the neighborhood. So when we moved in the property, including the two houses were the eyesore on the neighborhood. And over the years, a couple houses on the street have been torn down and rebuilt into massive houses that sell for around 2 million. We've also brought the Ballard Homestead up in its properties to beautify the neighborhood. So it's not just an eyesore. So, so then the blend towards the Seattle city church, it's, I think the Ballard Homestead has been used as a, as a sustainable model for dying churches that, um, where the local congregation can no longer keep up their buildings by themselves in the city. Um, so the, 
the Ballard Homestead, uh, sorry, the Seattle City Church is, let me give kind of a quick overview on that, is really, um, it's the culmination of about five years of relationship between um, uh, four church pastors um, that have learned to come together um, and work together, argue, communicate. We're now, uh, the city of Seattle is one of the unique cities in the U.S. that still has seven uh, church properties in the city, um, city proper. Uh, most of the Nazarene churches that were initially in urban areas all left during the 80s, 90s uh, period of white flight um, where the churches left, left the city. But the Seattle is kind of unique in that we still have seven properties. So five of the seven have come together um, and, or I should say, are coming together as one church called the Seattle City Church. And what we're looking at is sustainable, holistic ministry in the city um, uh, for the long term, which is going to include uh, different layers of ministry, meaning in some places mirroring what we're doing in the homestead. Um, we're going to have worship gatherings. Um, but we're also going to have small uh, neighborhood-based communities on mission, which are basically small groups of people uh, that live intentionally into listening into neighborhood, um, trying to be incarnational, uh, and are focused on spiritual growth and spiritual formation, as well as serving um, needs in the neighborhood. And because of we still have seven properties, we're looking the economic model is trying to look at how do we use these assets to sustain ministry long term because none of these none of these churches are fully are sustainable just with tithes and offerings. Yeah, uh, just to, again to pause so we can get our bearings here. Yeah. So, what Brian has done in ten years with the homestead, and granted some chunk of those 10 years have been with you know other ministry partners and and i don't want, it wasn't just brian from the beginning doing everything but but anyhow at this point it's a combination it's a, it's a team at the homestead in particular it's a team of three long four long-term partners or is it three four long-term partners for the seattle city church no for the homestead uh three it's three yeah. long-term partners using a space literally at the center of a neighborhood um, founded on the virtue of listening um, and as the result of a creative process that came from, that was birthed out of hardship, tension, insecurity, financial insecurity. Now, what Brian has done, he's named as a possible sustainable solution for churches that no longer can upkeep their building. So identifying the asset of a building, knowing that we don't have the, the, the person power or the financial you know stream of income via um, ties and offerings to support the upkeep. Um, this model that Brian's, that Brian's practice over the last 10 years is one suitable model moving forward. Now, I just want to point out that what he's learned in that process is now going to be applied, not not identically, but the principles are going to be applied to what is now expanded to Seattle at large. And he's identified in this conversation 
that there's a team of five um, <clears throat> pastors that are coming together, five of seven Seattle pastors that are coming together and starting over the process of listening and exploring what financial sustainability looks like when you have all these assets, building assets, but you don't have the people power, you don't have the income streams to support them. So are we, are we, is that where we're at? Yeah. So, and the reason I want to make a pause here is because it's going to be critical to do two things as we work through your story and ask some, some other questions. One, we're going to have to distinguish if we're asking questions about Ballard Homestead versus the Seattle City Church. Because for one, you're a long, for the former, you're a longtime resident that has all this sort of social capital built into the neighborhood. And, and, and you are sort of part of the blood flow or the, or the heartbeat of that neighborhood. On the other, it sounds like it's just emerging, right? So it's almost like this new organism that you're freshly grafted into. I mean, you've said it's been a five-year conversation and a result of relationships, but in terms of presence in Seattle and understanding Seattle as the target for incarnational ministry. Um, so we'll, we'll just want to make a distinction there. But to help us understand how unique the Seattle City Project is, or Seattle, excuse me, Seattle City Church is, give us a general sense. I'm not looking for any specifics here necessarily, but give us a general sense of the scale we're working with. So listeners understand, oh, okay. We're not talking about like owning two parsonages in, you know, a metropolis of 300,000. No, no. Give us the scale. What are we dealing with when you're talking about Seattle City Church, owning church buildings, like general populace, size, you know, that kind of stuff, just so we can get, get our bearings here. Yeah. So um, there's, you know, Seattle proper is the city of actually about a million people. Um, and uh, but it has been one of the fastest growing cities over the last decade. Um and it's just, I mean, it's exploding and therefore the price of the price of housing, uh, to give you an idea, most of the city, um, you're seeing a lot of real estate, uh, residential selling at close to $700 a square foot. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's pretty, it's expensive. Um, in the, in the case of the church, you're talking about probably close to $40 million worth of, uh, property value. Um, uh, and at this point, only um, of the five that are a part of the Seattle City Church, only two of them have functioning congregations anymore. Um, and just to be clear, within those five, the Ballard Homestead was not the only model um, that was trying to find sustainable. Uh, uh, Mark Woodward at Seattle First has, you know, has been there for 19 years and he's run He's done a lot of renting of the building with different congregations and organizations and artists and run a coffee shop called the Mosaic uh, Coffee Shop. Um, and then and West Seattle has they sold off a piece of their property and let it be developed. Um, and that allowed for um, for some um, restoration of their building. Um, so there are there are other things that have been happy, happening um, where people. So it's it's a little bit of a merger of it. Um, I think the question is how to do it practically. So just uh, how to do it practically and sustainably. So if we 
sell off property and just use the money um, to keep up a church that still only functions on Sundays around tithes and offerings, then the money is just being put into a system that is dying quickly um, and is not sustainable. And so what we're looking at is not just being able to keep the model that exists that's dying, that's not sustainable, um, propped up. It is to try and look at new systems that that uh, that can be long term sustainable, and and that's where the it's the blending of uh, a lot of different conversations and being able to listen and bring in model. I mean. There's business, there's real estate, uh, there's ec basic economics, um, there's needs of neighborhoods um, that that can all help out. So as when, when we talk about the scale, we're, we're really just talking about two congregations. Uh, one of them have said themselves that they probably have, as is, they have about five years left before they will die off because their people are older. It's an older, very older congregation, and um, and because of money that they have at, at this point, and knowing that a few there's a few givers in that local church that when those uh, givers pass away, um, the church not only loses them and their family's participation um, physically, but they also lose it financially, which is a, a huge part of those churches. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what we're we're dealing with. I think on a scale with the Seattle City Church is uh, we're looking at um, dying, either congregations that no longer exist or ones that only are given five to seven years, buildings that have deferred maintenance in in the nine digits. I mean, uh, and yeah, and yet probably close to $40 million of value. And so when wow. you look at that wow. as an entrepreneur, it's just, it's, it's, you know, people can complain and cry about it, but it, you can only can complain and cry about it within the system that we have now. If again, any entrepreneur that says, um, I want to do a startup and we only have $40 million in assets, <laughs> they wouldn't be complaining. <laughs> They'd be finding ways to use those assets. Um, for the mission that their, their entrepreneur endeavor uh, desires to use it for. So, so if we can be missional entrepreneurs, then we have to look at what are the assets we have. Um, you know, the district and the denomination, for the most part, are not going to come, you know, just pay us a bunch of money to do this because they're not sure. Um, and for the most part, districts and local churches are hurting. Um especially coming out of COVID, trying to pay their own bills. And there's just not a lot of money. So we have to find ways and have been and have been gifted with the ability to dream about creating a sustainable model in the city. But the profits or the, sorry, the profits, the money has to come from the city. Wow. Well, a lot, a lot of good stuff here. Um, and <clears throat> I want to parcel some of it out and push a little bit forward towards the end of the conversation because I think it'd be a good place to end up. But but specifically, Brian, something you brought up strikes me as uh, sort of the bedrock of any positive change. And, and again, we're we're 
we're forcing ourselves here to to really reckon with the economics because that's kind of the thrust of our conversation. Um, we could spin off into all kinds of other topics, but particularly with the economics of uh, the future of the church, something you brought up struck me as a bedrock question to, that that needs to be asked, and it's 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 not how do we keep doing this. And by this, I mean, whatever you, whatever this is, whatever we're familiar with, whatever the church considers like really good ministry, whatever, you know, the legacy of the church is in a community, whatever your this is, right? Like the, 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 this of the ministry of the last five, 10, 15, 20, 150 years, that is ap- that is not the question that gets us pointed in the right direction. Instead, the question is, how do we leverage the gifts, assets, and resources we have to discover that? And that is, and the, the, the that is whatever is tomorrow, right? And that's a fundamentally different set of questions or fundamentally different question that results in this whole set of questions. Instead of how do we keep the thing going and now ask, how do we get there? How do we get after that? One is entirely an entrepreneurial visionary question that requires taking an immense amount of risks because you're you're shooting at something that is opaque and you can barely grasp, but is maybe promising. The other is a really safe question because we all know what this is. We know that the what the maintenance needs to be. We know how to pull off the same you know, the, you know, the, uh, full capacity sanctuary, we know how to, or maybe, maybe we've forgotten cause it's been so long. We know how to do good youth ministry, but none of them necessarily are the, that of tomorrow. And I'm hearing that at the bedrock of the Seattle city church is asking the hard question, how do we get to that? How do we support that? How do we use our assets to pursue that? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. That's I. That is the tough question. Um, I because that and if we had if we had the the certain answer, it wouldn't be entrepreneurial, right? <laughs> uh, in fact, it wouldn't be an adventure. Uh, it wouldn't be. I mean, it just they're just there. There's none of that. If if it was so, in fact, it, we wouldn't even need God. <laughs> <laughs> to go there, right? Uh, if it was clear, and but that's the question I think from denominational leaders is, that is the scary one of the scariest. Um, there's there's probably two, but the one that continues to be brought up is they uh, they don't know that we've discovered if they're going to allow us. Sorry, real quick. Th- there's two. One of them is this is how we've spent assets or created assets in the past, mm. you're asking for a new way and that brings risk and that is scary. So the risk of asset management, that is, that's, that's the big one and there's fear involved in that one. And this, but the second one is, I don't know that you have the, the new way of doing it, whatever, of doing ministry, um, of being the church. We don't know that you have that figured out. So how do we allow you, how do we go into uncharted ter- territory of, of uh, 
of new risk management of assets um, into a, a modus operandi that we that is not yet um, for sure. Um, and so that's why a little bit we're trying to look at several different um, ways of operating. We don't think the mega church in the city is the one is we're not we don't believe that's going to be the future. Um, we don't believe that a, a 500 person auditorium uh, sanctuary is what is going to be needed in the future of the, of the church. Um, so the way that we're going about it is looking at trying to keep four worshiping um, centers, sanctuaries, in the one in each quadrant of the city, and then filling in the neighbor all the neighborhood gaps. So Seattle has seventy eight named neighborhoods. Now you can cluster some of those together because some of them are really small, but then trying to have a missional presence um, within each neighborhood and build those out over the years. Now the need there is we already have the worshiping centers in the four quadrants. The need then is to uh, is to repurpose the assets into one of the biggest needs to keep people in the city, and that is housing. And and uh, and that's not only our need as a mission, but it's a need as a city. The city of Seattle have said that they are forty two thousand housing units short right now and grow and growing every month. So forty two thousand housing units short right now. Um, and so that is that's kind of now I'm going to kind of where we're going. But those are the, the two places, the two tough questions. Um uh, yeah, that we're moving towards and trying to discover, but they'll never be discovered uh, without trying. Here's here's what I find so fascinating about this this little uh, this little aspect of our conversation, and that that is just just to say it up front, and then to kind of unpack it a little bit. That is the biggest need of doing ministry in the city is housing, which happens to be the biggest need of any human being living, living in the city. It's funny how that works. Um, but here's, here's what's so fascinating about that. You don't arrive at that. If you don't start asking different questions about ministry than the ones we've always asked, which is a, a, another way of saying it is you don't, you don't arrive at that economic need. If you don't start asking different economic questions about doing ministry into the future. And here's why, because if we spend our time always asking historical questions that the evangelical church has been asking questions about how to pull off a certain, you know, type of gathering questions about how, how, how to uh, compensate, you know, to, to the best of our ability, the greatest, you know, public order, i.e. preacher that we can possibly afford. If you ask questions like, you know, how can we piece together a youth staff that can reach the most youth? Because that's how you grow churches. You, you, you get the more youth, you get the more families, more families you get and so on and so forth. All these questions that, that have been fundamentally economic questions that we've asked for the last 10, 20, 30, 50 years, you never get to the question, what are the needs in the future to sustain incarnational presence here? You just don't, you don't even arrive at the right questions, let alone potential answers. You see how that's why it's so fascinating, which is why a lot of us that are trying to work on the horizon 
of, you know, this emerging world that is so bizarre, but we know, you know, we know that the presence of Christ must be within and therefore ministry must take place at. That's why we get so bored in some of these conversations because we're not even asking the right questions yet. Right. And you don't ask the right questions until you abandon the ones that don't get us the point in the right direction in the first place. So that brings me somewhere that, that I want to explore real quickly. So we've identified that there's a new set of questions you got to ask. Right. The ones that result in getting answers like what you just told us, the biggest need doing missional and incarnational ministry in the city is actually housing. Right. What are a couple of the other questions that you guys are asking as a team of city pastors that are different. And we're talking economic questions here that are different than the economic, than the questions that were asked in what we just call for the lack of a better term, the old economic paradigm where a church was entirely supported with tithes and offerings. What are some different questions you're asking given this large undertaking you guys are a part of? Yeah. That's a, that's a good, I think that's a good question because I think it's not only how the church operates, but how does the church operate within the context of uh, holistic cities and neighborhoods? So it, it's the same thing that happens within community development. And I think even the scripture, like, you know, don't just give a man a fish, teach him how to fish kind of idea. And, um, and so uh, like how, and then even within community development is how do we not only provide people's basic needs, but try to help give them the resources that helps them to come out of uh, cyclical poverty, you know, or generational poverty. Like how do they start to break the poverty cycle? Um, I think those are questions the church needs to be asking, not of its neighbors, but of itself. Um, and, uh, and yeah. And so, and yet it's not separate from the conversation they're having with their neighbors. So it's, it's like the church has to exist in the neighborhood and then has to start to feel those conversations happening in the neighborhood and then start to ask the questions like, how do we participate in this holistic sustainable model? So here's, Here's the big if, all right, that we're looking at. If if this pulls off, it will be it'll be a legacy project kind of thing. Um, but and this is how I I dream about it over one property, and I'll just go there real quick, right? And okay, try to tell the, the Church of Nazarene. Um, by if you look back in the church records of North Seattle Church of the Nazarene, it was uh, that used to be the Crown Hill Church of the Nazarene, a pastor bought a piece of property, and then came and told the church board. <laughs> that piece of property, two and a half acres, is now going to sit in 2025 across the street from one of the new light rail stations. And it has a parsonage on it, and it has a small uh, church building, but it's there's still a lot of open space. So the city has come to us, which the city of Seattle has, has a history of being hard to work with, but they have come to us asking, what would you think about in terms of development around a light rail station? There's just so much need and it's going to get rezoned. And we're like, well, what is it going to be rezoned as? And they're saying, well, tell us what you would envision for that property. And 
that will help influence how we rezone it. So there's all of a sudden a working relationship with the city. And so what if this is the dream and we're working towards this, but what if we build out housing, uh, mixed income housing on that property um, along with some commercial space and with some community gathering space. Um, we can serve the needs of the church that exists there because of the community gathering space. We can keep um, six to eight units for housing, um, missional uh, people that want to participate in this. We can create a sustainability through um, the units being rented, but also through the commercial space. And if we do it right, we could actually create businesses in the commercial space that help people in low-income housing learn trades that come out of, um, that break that help break the, uh, the cycle of poverty. There's a lot of ifs in there. There's a lot of danger in there and risk and um, institutions that have to approve uh, decisions and not just the church um, institution. There's there's a lot of others, but there's a place in there where you, if the church can participate in community, participate in restoration, participate in meeting not only its own needs of sustainability and mission, but also participate in helping um, fix the needs of the city, then all of a sudden the missions collide where we actually are working on restorative kingdom-minded work together alongside our neighbors and in our city government. Um, yeah, that's, that is such, a, it's cool to sort of sit back and, and, and follow you tell about that particular opportunity. And here's why, because it literally parallels what you as an individual and part of a family did when you got to Seattle. Right. Like I'm, I'm starting to see like some critical uh, like mirroring here. Right. Like what you did in terms of a, like taking risk with an unknown future, but but convinced or, or I, let's be honest, convicted that there must be a, a different type of way of doing ministry that's not scripted. We must literally step into the dark and engage listening skills and all of its and all of its meaning both you know being patient you know being you know, <clears throat> staying still being engaged you know being present and 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 developing those relationships in a participatory way to communally realize a different future that's that's what happened when you got to right got to Seattle and did in the ba in Ballard and here we are you sort of expand that out to ten thousand feet and here we are with a vastly larger potential you know uh, sum of money you know to be really just use really simple terms with vastly larger footprint with a vastly bigger potential for influence and now it's not an individual in a neighborhood it's a community of individuals in a city, essentially. And this particular church, as a community, must ask the same questions about how we listen, how we be present, and how we participate in developing a different economic future for our neighborhood that you guys, you and your family asked 10 years ago. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, it is. And it's it's been funny. And the, the pieces that I 
if if people are interested in it, the piece that I would want to know, because just because I would want everyone to know, is in the midst of that, there was fighting, <laughs> there was uh, and there was making up, uh, there was burnout, there was rest and restoration um, in self-given sabbatical. <laughs> uh, there, um, there was forgiveness um, on multiple parts. Um, and yeah, there, there's, there's so much in that. And so don't, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like all of a sudden with the through with what COVID has done to people's imaginations. Um, it's actually given them more of an imagination. I think a little bit out of being pushed into, uh, the church struggling through COVID and trying to figure out, um, how does it exist? Um, the, the, the decline that they said that they thought would see in the, uh, in the next about 20 years have been accelerated um, into the last three or something. I mean, I can't remember the exact numbers that I've, I've seen in so many different reports. But yeah, there's and so there's there's so many pieces of it that uh, really sustainable presence and the living into it. Um, only has given has given us a place where we are allowed to speak into the conversation holistically, and it's not like again you, you we joke around about it all the time. It's not like we did something except for we stayed. We kept our I would say we kept our heart close to God and in our to our best ability <laughs> uh, through that um, journey. Um, uh, we listened and we, we did the hustle and, and then, but then, and then had to sit back and listen again, I think. Uh, so there's just so many pieces to it. And I always, I think people arrive, I'm realizing it now when I've always looked up to people who arrived and gone, ah, oh, I'd love to be there and realize that I probably didn't hear the backstory before, uh, and arriving and no, in no ways have, have any of us arrived, but by any means, but it's just, it's, it's just so important to remember the stepping into the story and then living into the hustle of it, hustle, presence, listening that I think allows you um, over time to then maybe hear and see in new ways. So, yeah. Yeah. That's so good. Hey, I've, <clears throat> I've got kind of a rapid fire set of questions for you. I know we're coming close to the end here, but, um, I'd like to I'd like to spit those at you quickly and get you know your 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 hot take on them and then I want to close with something we had mentioned earlier and but I want to sort of write it out just for two or three minutes and get your thoughts on and bring it back around full circle. Um, but let me just ask you a quick couple rapid fire questions here. You just give me a, you don't even have to think it out too much um, because I know it's it's all I mean you just wear you embody it so it's it's not going to trip you up or anything. Okay, so here we go. How, uh, given we're talking two different paradigms here, we're talking a kind of traditional church paradigm, tithes and offerings fuel the entire, right? Like that's the predominant income stream, fuels the entire Sunday morning experience and all the programs versus what you guys are exploring, which is the church is a, particip a participant in a community development model that leans into and survives by incarnational presence as one neighbor among many. Okay, so here we go. What would you say is the biggest difference 
economically speaking, between the former model and the current paradigm you guys are working with? Man, the biggest difference, man. And, and, I good. Yeah, no, I just say um, um, risk and impact. I think would be the two. Uh, there's risk in it because it's new, um, but the impact potential is much greater, much greater than in the an internal uh, an an internal sustainability model. Well, I like that. I like that. Okay. Again, what's the biggest difference? or maybe the cause of the most tension, if you will, between the old understanding of church building and property versus the newer understanding or how you guys are developing an understanding of how to utilize, utilize church building and property. Yeah, uh, man, there's, there's several pieces of that. I think one of them mainly is just fear of new. I think that's a human condition. Uh, and I don't, but it's definitely true within uh, institutions, um, especially dying institutions, because they have the choice. Again, we talk about this all the time mm-hmm. uh, within dive praxis, uh, but of trying something new. Yeah. And I, and I just think, again, I think they're just, they're human conditions. Of what, especially- what, a, what are you, what part of the old paradigm as it relates to understanding building the properties? Are you, would you and your team say you're freed from? Yeah, I mean, uh, oh man, I don't, that's a, I don't, that's a good question that just, that I'm freed from. Um, yeah, I think I'm just, I, I, I move away from being a protector, um, of a building of space as if I own it. Um, and I move into, uh, an invitation. So I think that's probably, that's prob- probably the, the biggest one. Yeah, that's good. I like that. <clears throat> How about, okay, one, one more for this little rapid fire here. How would you say your understanding, again, we're talking the dis- difference between two different economic paradigms. How would you see your understanding of a church's urban presence being different than the, than the previous paradigm of urban presence? Yeah, I, again, I think I think it's reiterated um, the I would say maybe especially in an urban context where density is is key and is actually being pushed um, that um, presence when when presence is just Sunday morning of a gathering of, of a large number of people, it has a huge impact on the neighborhood it exists in. So if there's a building, our the Ballard Homestead is in the middle of a residential neighborhood with no parking. Um, and so when 180 people only come on Sunday mornings and only participate in presence on the Sunday morning, it is a huge distraction. And, and there are lines drawn immediately um, by not only the church participants, but by the neighbors as well, um, that you are not a part of this. You're not participating in it. And so when a neighbor walks to this church, it's very different than when hundreds of people drive to it um, because they they participate different. They're, it's their neighborhood. Um, and so um, all of a sudden, when the church participates in seven-day presence in neighborhood, and especially in density, night and day, 
Um, very, very different. That's that's so good. That's yeah. helpful. Okay, let let's round it out and end with this. And and I I tabled it a while back. I'm gonna bring it back in though here, and you can close this out. Um, what? And it's a question about ministry. We've been really trying to kind of wrangling with the different economic paradigms and how you guys are imagining a different economic future for the church. But I'm going to pivot real quick and talk about ministry because we the, we we can't not talk about them at the same time because money is a tool. What will you be able to do now in ministry with the new economic paradigm than with the previous? Yeah, I think in the new paradigm, I think it would embody and resource the priesthood of all believers in a way that there are um, people participating in the restorative kingdom-minded mission of God. Don't hear me doing the bullhorn uh, again, you know, on the street corner. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, But uh, literally uh, participating in seven day presence, um, not only where they live, but where they work um, in restorative conversations holistically. And, and that, um, and then that would allow space for deeper um, spiritual formation. Um, so the main, and, and we, we could resource people into this uh, um, like rather than paying, if you had to pay um, a full-time pastor who had a family in the city to live, you are probably talking about by all the standards we're looking at um, about $105,000 a year. Um, uh, if the, if you move the church's assets from large sanctuaries into housing, so you, the church owns housing and you were, could resource people by giving them housing to live intentionally in a neighborhood, work and live in neighborhood, then all of a sudden, um, and then, then all of a sudden the resources are spread, which means more people are involved in seven day presence, seven day restoration, uh, kingdom-minded ministry, um, and and that that is very different than paying for pastors to run only a Sunday gathering, and then um, and then talking people into now it's probably going to take a generation probably to try and do the spiritual formation to allow them to consider themselves as priests, <laughs> if you will, um, um, as participants in the kingdom. Um, rather than uh, j- just Sunday participants, but um, but it can be done, and I think that's where the deep, real spiritual formation happens. One day a week is simply not incarnational, but seven day presence is, and this is the greatest distinction between this traditional Sunday morning focused model and guerrilla ministry. Now these two are not mutually exclusive, and we plan to explore what it looks like when they are working in collaboration with one another. And this, friends, is exactly what we will be dialoguing about on our next episode. So join us next time as we discuss guerrilla ministry with traditional church pastors on the Guerrilla Pastors Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.